So anyway, I was just laughing because just like earlier today, I was having a conversation with one of my sons in which I was explaining the uh, the wise parable of uh, about counting your chickens before they hatch. And so I was just kind of laughing at myself as that apparently came back to bite me here tonight. Uh, <laughs> but anyhow, <laughs> yes, Tom, no, it wouldn't happen to a Mintat, uh, and it is true, sometimes at times like this, I, I can uh, certainly have sympathy for the Butlerian Jihad, but that's okay, we're okay. Um, Mentats may be awesome, but they would not permit us to have these classes uh, together, so uh, I'm, I'm uh, just as glad that we have those things. Anyway, alright, so, tonight... We are going to discuss the action-packed end of the uh, of book one, um, and uh, there's certainly lots and lots to talk about uh, here at the end of book one. Um, in fact, I was kind of you know you know looking over again uh, the chapters that we're discussing tonight. I was just like, man, there's no way. Fortunately, I was sufficiently foresighted uh, to schedule a class next week in which we don't have more reading to discuss. Um, what I would like, uh, what I strongly uh, encourage uh, you guys to do is send me questions. I would love to answer. I know that many of you have had questions. I know a bunch of you have had observations that I haven't been able to um, uh, to address in uh, you know in in the class. There have you know, been uh, many of you who have been attending, and we have uh, almost fifty people again tonight. And uh, and I know you know you guys are, are are writing comments generally faster than I can totally keep up with. So I know that there are lots of good questions, lots of good ideas that have come through that I've missed or or, or skimmed over. Um, so please do. Uh, send me questions that you have. If you have really long, uh, I know sometimes when I ask for questions, people send me really long things, which are really interesting. But that's not the best place to get because I mean I'll read them, but then nobody else will. If you if you want the opportunity to sort of throw out a theory or sort of explain uh, your take on something that we've been talking about in class, I really encourage you to do that. The best place for that is on our discussion forums. We have a discussion forum set up just for uh, just for the MythGuard Academy classes. So there should be you know there'll be a place there where you can do that, and then you guys you know other people can read it and comment on it. That'll definitely be the best place to do that. But if you have any any questions or suggestions, Suggestions for um, for topics uh, to, uh, to to look at. Um, definitely send those to me by email so that I can I can you know have those and, and be able to look through them before next week. On the offhand chance, you know, stray. It's practically uh, it's a uh, you know mere possibility. But anyway, in, in case we don't get through everything I want to talk about tonight, we'll finish that up next week too. But I would I hope that we will have some time um, to uh, to talk about um, uh, uh, other 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 issues and questions. Uh, Sarah Lagarde has just mentioned the Princess Irolan quotes at the beginning of each chapter. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, yeah, maybe we can look at those. Um, I, I mean, I want to be looking at those. Um, Sort of in the big picture. I definitely want to come back to those at the end. But Sarah, maybe that that does make sense. Maybe we sort of we I've I've built in a pause at the end of each book. Um, that is an, an extra class session. Um, so maybe that actually would be a good tradition to start, Sarah. Pause um, at the end and look back at the uh, at the Princess Irulan bits uh, at the beginning. I think that's a that that's a good idea. So Sarah, if you could email me just to remind me, make sure I don't forget that. Uh, I'd appreciate that. Um, so yeah, so please do send me emails, and I'll get, we'll get to as many of those as we can. In the meantime, um, 
I decided, um, and, and this may spawn uh, uh, further emails, perhaps, but um, I am. Uh, I want to spend the majority of our time looking at the last scene in book one. There's of course a lot to talk about. You know, we've got the uh, we've got the 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 confrontation between Jessica and Thufer. We've got the the final betrayal and the death of the Duke and the near assassination of Baron Harkonnen and, and lots of other things that we could be talking about. But I really want to focus on that last scene that is Paul and Jessica in the still tent in the final chapter of book one. Um, I, there, there are a couple bits that I, I didn't want to miss entirely, things that I wanted to touch on kind of in passing, um, as I just kind of sort of skim lightly over those first few enormously important action-packed chapters. Um, but I really want to dig, you know, my, you know, thinking about this carefully, knowing there was no chance I was going to be able to cover everything I wanted to, uh, to, to talk about, I decided where I want to spend the bulk of my time is very carefully going through that last chapter because I think it's something that really rewards careful and slow thought. Um, what is happening with Paul and what we see going on there in that last chapter? It's, it's one of the places I think... I've heard many people complain when they uh, talk about Dune. I've heard many people complain that they quite dislike Paul Atreides, um, that uh, they, they, they find him a, a sort of uh, a repulsive or irritating character. Um, and I can understand that to some extent. But uh, I think sort of the strangeness in Paul, the thing that makes Paul so hard to kind of cope with, so hard to relate to in the way that people tend to want to do that. And I, I, m many of you who have been listening to me for a long time will understand the tone of voice in which I say that. Um, but let me explain for those of you who are newer. Um, it's one of my personal pet peeves as a literature professor that the, the, one of the only ways in which modern readers are trained to experience a work of literature is by personally relating to the characters. It's a kind of assumption which is almost unexamined by many, many people. Um, I mean, I remember being asked by someone that when, when, I, when I happened to mention, for instance, that I really love Jane Austen, which I do. I love Jane Austen's novels. Um, she's just a fantastic writer. Um, and I remember I was asked... Uh, so I was speaking with a woman about this, and she asked me, when you read Jane Austen, what characters do you relate to? And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, you know, because I've always, you know, I relate to the heroines, and it was always really meaningful for me, and that's why I've always loved Jane Austen so much. And I'm like, well, yeah, sure, I can, I can, I can certainly understand that. She's like, well, you know, so, like, when you read them, do you, do you relate to the heroes? Like, do, do, you, do you relate to Mr. Darcy? And I'm like, well, I mean, I guess kind of, a little bit, but really Elizabeth, actually, is the one that I... Anyway, the point is, if you're reading literature and all you're looking for is somebody who looks like you, you know, if, 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 if you are just trying to find a place to sort of anchor yourself, a place that looks like you, that sort of feels familiar, you're missing so much <laughs> of literature. It just really bothers me. Um... Anyway, that's a talk for another time, but, uh, but I do think that Paul Atreides is very challenging for people who approach Dune from that point of view. If you're looking for, if you're looking to relate to the protagonist, if you're trying to connect sort of emotionally with Paul, it's hard to do. And this is the chapter where that becomes, moves from challenging to nearly impossible. Again, if you're just sort of thinking about it in that kind of, um, you know, again, I, I can 
understand what that character is going through kind of way. Because I don't think any of us really can relate firsthand to what Paul's going through there uh, at the end of book one. At least I rather hope none of us can uh, can relate uh, to what Paul's going through at the end of that chapter. Um, and I find that in my own readings of Dune... Um, Many many times, I just I know that there's so much going on there, and and he shifts so quickly that it's easy for it to go by. So, partly for my own edification, I want to sit down and actually go through that really carefully and see what happens. So, okay, so that's what we're going to focus on tonight. But before we get there, I do as there were a few things that I that I did want to make sure. Part, some of these are things that we've been looking at, and I want to sort of continue. Um, focusing on, and some of them are, are are sort of a little bit more fun. I'm going to want your help uh, on many of these things, by the way. Um, but uh, anyway, so here, first, just a few passages I wanted to bring up before we get to uh, to, to Paul and Jessica. Okay. Um, first, this is uh, two two passages I wanted to mention from the conversation between Thufer and Jessica. Um, so. This is, uh, well, you can tell where it is. You accuse me of whispering baseless suspicions? That's Thufer, of course. Baseless, yes. You'd meet this with your own whispers? Your life is compounded of whispers, not mine, Thufer. Then you question my abilities? She sighed. Thufer, I want you to examine your own emotional involvement in this. The natural human's an animal without logic. Your projections of logic onto all affairs is unnatural but suffer to continue for its usefulness. You are the embodiment of logic, a mentat, yet your problems, your problem solutions are concepts that, in a very real sense, are projected outside yourself, there to be studied and rolled around, examined from all sides. You think now to teach me my trade, he asked, and he did not try to hide the disdain in his voice. Anything outside yourself, this you can see and apply your logic to it, she said. But it's a human trait that when we encounter personal problems, those things most deeply personal are the most difficult to bring out for our logic to scan. We tend to flounder around, blaming everything but the actual deep-seated thing that's really chewing on us. Um, by the way, I find the image of uh, the thing that's really chewing on us uh, really interesting in regard to the, uh, the, the, the metaphor of the animal in the trap uh, chewing off its own leg that, um, uh, that uh, the Reverend Mother brought up at the beginning. Of course, you, you notice, you know, and, and, and it's clear that whenever Jessica, whenever Bene Gesserit uses the word human, they, they're doing so very deliberately, right? Remember, she takes Paul to task uh, on this when he calls the Baron um, a twisted human. And she says, you know, don't use that word lightly. And he's like, shut up. Hey, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that later on. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, so, so again, when she used, I'm, I'm, I bring this up merely uh, to demonstrate, it's pretty clear that when Jessica uses the word human, she's doing it deliberately and using it in the Bene Gesserit sense. Um, so notice what she's suggesting about the mentats now. I remember... Remember the passage uh, we looked at back in the first class when uh, uh, when the Reverend Mother was telling Paul about the Butlerian Jihad and what happened afterwards and the schools that began to be formed in order basically to sort of tap into, you know, in the absence of computers, right, computers having been abolished, uh, into sort of to tap more fully into human potential. And she said there were two relics of those original schools, right? One was the Bene Gesserit. Um, and I, always, I have to admit, I remember, you know, from the first time I read the book and sort of 
continuing, uh, uh, depending on how long it's been since I've read the book, when I read it again, um, I generally expect her to say that the other one is the Mentats, right? Because the Mentats are the replacement for the computer. So I sort of, and, and at the, you know, we've already gotten, you know, a, a sort of a glimpse of the, like, Mentat versus Bene Gesserit thing, um, and... Um, so you know, I, I, so, you know, so so there are two remnants, even the Bene Gesserits and and the Ment. But she doesn't say the Mentats, right? So it's not the Mentats who are the other ones. The other is, do, do you remember who's the other one? It's the Bene Gesserits and not Mentats, the Spacing Guild. Exactly, exactly. Good, good. Chris and Sean and Tom all remember. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Spacing Guild. Um, you know th that those hidden figures. Remember Paul speculating. You know, are, are they? Do they even look human, right? Have they mutated? Are they are they are they are they really human beings anymore? Um, uh, anyway, so apparently uh, they are the other division in the Mentats. Who are the Mentats? Well, the Mentats don't seem to count. Remember, Paul's wondering whether the uh, Spacing Guild people will still look human. Um, what about Mentats? Are Mentats human? Right? In the Bene Gesserit sense, it seems like the answer is no. Right, um, and yet Sean is right. Sean is pointing out that she says that you know only two remain of the original schools. Yes, presumably the Mentats, you know, the, the Mentat schools would have come along afterwards. Um, but again, I think it's it's interesting that that's that's not the divide, right? The divide is not between the Bene Gesserits on the one hand, the Mentats on the other hand. It's the Bene Gesserits and the Spacing Gills, and the Mentat are Mentats are just kind of extra. And I think. My understanding of this is that they are, in this sense, lesser. Again, look what her emphasis here, her emphasis on, you know, the emphasis with the italics there, the natural humans, an animal without logic. Um, your projection of logic onto all affairs is unnatural. In forming a person to be a mentat, in, 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 in giving a person mentat training, you are, to some extent, according to Jessica, according to Jessica's terms, dehumanizing them. Right? They are supposed to. You know, this is why, and you can hear this in the language that they use. Right? That's both used about them and that they themselves use. When we we've, we've heard both Thufer and Peter Devries talking about this. Right? And you know, when when whenever they are being engaged on a personal level. Right? When their emotions are being are being brought into play they start saying things like, you're trying to impair my efficiency, right? Um, I can't do that. I can't afford that. As Philip Lord says, mentats are tools. Exactly. Um, and I think it's interesting, it's in sort of important to remember um, that, the you know, the mentors, so in this scene, when we get Thufer versus Jessica, um, to some extent, this is the, I mean, the, these two, you know, with the exception of Paul, but Paul's in a different category, um, both because he's the heir and because he's he's younger. Thufer and Jessica are the two great poles in the Duke's life, right? Think of uh, think of Jessica talking about the two. You know, the Duke being two men. There is a sense in which, sort of, Thufer is the is the the not in charge of, but he's like the advisor of one of those men that is the Duke, and Jessica is the advisor of the other, right? Or, you know, the two of them are connected. Remember how much respect Thufer has for the old Duke, 
and for the old duke's father, right? Um, he is he's been in the Atreides family for three generations. Thufir has, um, and um, and you know the old duke who is despised by Jessica is clearly admired by Thufir. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, yeah, um, it's clear that you know his his being logical and sort of suppressing his human desires is a, is a, a necessary thing for his trade. But it's also clear that Jessica is correct here. Nothing is more obvious in this conversation between Thufir and Jessica than that Thufir is in the wrong, right? We know from the beginning, we've been told, so unless our narrator is really unreliable, which it turned out, um, we know that Jessica is not the traitor. In fact, we've been told all along that it's Yui, right? We know, so it's one of the consequences of the fact that so much was revealed to us in advance, right? We've been talking about the the complete uh, uh, sort of oblivion to spoilers, right? That this book has. We've told it, been told everything from the beginning. One of the consequences of that is that we come, we know the answer, right? When the two of them are debating, and Thufir keeps saying, like, you know, is there anything to forgive, right? And he's like, yes, I'm going to keep. Suspecting you, you've not convinced me. You know, and you know he's not saying this, but his uh, he's he's not using those words. Um, but his every his every statement says quite clearly, "I'm going to carry on suspecting you. I don't. I believe that it is still possible that you are a spy." Um, and we know he's wrong, right? We know he's wrong. So from the beginning, we have this conviction. Thufir doesn't come off looking really good here. And when she starts pointing at this here, right, you are encountering a personal problem, Thufir, right? You are, you know, Thufir's been screwing up all along. Um, it's really, um, um, it's really kind of interesting. I mean, we can see his side of it, as Nancy Fosberg points out. He's wrong in fact, but he's not making wrong decisions based on his information. No, it's plausible, right? It's not that he is exactly failing in his computations exactly, other than the one glaring fact, right? That is, he is accepting it as absolute, as an absolute given that a Sukh doctor cannot possibly be corrupted, right? Um, remember, in the earlier on in this conversation, you know, he says, like, it, you know, they talk about Yui, right? And he says, it can't be Yui. We both know it can't be Yui. Why? Because he, Thufur, can certify that he really has uh, received um, the Sukh conditioning, right? The Imperial conditioning. Um, Thufur is 100% confident in his information on that point, and he's right. He has received the conditioning. Right, but he does not. Um, he does not realize that the conditioning can be circumvented. But again, you know, can you blame him exactly for that? Um, no, not exactly. Um, but uh, but nevertheless, he is making them. And we've gotten some clues to the problem that he's having. Um, we don't know it exactly yet. Remember in that first scene with Thufir, um, the one with you know where he's looking at the target dummy, right, and saying that's that's me, right? There stand I, um, and uh, he's sad. Remember, Paul asks him, "Why are you sad? Are you sad to leave this place?" And he makes that speech about no, you know, you know, people, you know, you can be sad to leave people, but a place is just a place, right? Um, 
But remember, I pointed out at the time, the question was never answered. When Paul said, why are you sad? Um, he evaded the question. He never answered it. But it seems to me unlikely that Paul was wrong to think that Thufir was sad. What's Thufir sad about? What is it that makes Thufir sad? Um, but the more important thing is not the mystery of his sadness, but the fact of his sadness, right? Thufir has a personal problem. His emotions are engaged. His emotions, his emotions are clearly engaged. We see a lot of emotion out of Thufir almost every time we meet him in this book so far. Um, and I think that's interesting. I think that that's, um, that's important. Um, Sean uh, Hyde is not quite so willing as I am to uh, give Thufir the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, Sean says that I, he's always felt that Thufir's suspicions were devoid of logic rather than a product of it. Jessica is going to kill her duke and son for what reason? The duke jumps to the correct conclusion that the letter is to sow suspicion on the woman he loves, but Thufir doesn't. Um, Sean, I, I, exactly. I hear you there, and that's exactly Jessica's argument, right? Um, you know, she's saying that, you know, this, this it, it, it makes much more sense. It is far more logical to believe that the uh, rumor that you heard was a plant. Um, that is more logical than that I am a traitor. Um, but uh, anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and Kevin, you're right. Um, it is it, the 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 Baron's plan is brilliant, right? You know, all the signs. Uh, you know, he's you know, this is all this is all signs that the plan is working. Yes, absolutely, it is. Um, But here, I agree with Sean um, in the sense that Thufir doesn't see it, right? Thufir can't figure it out. Um, why? Or rather, I always want him to be able to figure it out. They talk about Thufir Hawat. He's this, like, you know, legendary mentat who's been... Um, uh, who's been, uh, you know, serving the Atreides family uh, for so long. Um, but he doesn't seem very good. We see him messing up all the time. And the Duke seems to get it better. I agree with Sean. That I, that's the same thing. You know, he sees it, right? Um, uh, and we see Thufir so conspicuously fail to consider the one possibility, which in fact turns out to be the case. But to me, the more important thing is the fact of his emotional involvement. There are a few mysteries about Thufir's character, I think, that still stand at this point in the book. Why was he sad to leave Caladan exactly? Or why was he sad upon the leaving of Caladan? What's up with him and Benny Gesserit? Why does he hate Bene Gesserit so much? His suspicion of Bene Gesserit is pretty clearly the th one of the things that's impairing his efficiency where this thing is concerned. And Sean, this for me um, is why, is I think, the, the reason that he fails. The reason that, he, that the Duke can see the truth where Thufir can't because Thufir has a blind spot when it comes to Bene Gesserit. Um, anyway, I think um, uh, 
I think <laughs> Doug says that Thufir is kind of like Doug Overmeyer says that uh, Thufir is kind of like Yoda in The Empire Strikes Back. None of his predictions come true, but we think he's he's this wise fellow. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah, yeah. He is. What's wrong with Thufir? What is up with? Why is he so? Why is he so suspicious of Bene Gesserit's, or perhaps even Jessica in particular? Right? He 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 seems to have issues with Jessica from the very beginning of when we meet him. Right? You know, we were looking at that scene where he's thinking about you know the Bene Gesserit witch and why is the Reverend Mother here and what is she doing to Paul and all of those things. Um, Yes, he know, you know uh, you know Neil says he knows about their political manipulations. Yes, he does, but he's mentat, right? Why can't he just take that into his calculations? Why can that not why can that not just be a datum for him, right? The, again, this is my the problem is his emotional invest. You say Bene Gesserit to Thufer and he gets pissed off. A mentor's not supposed to get pissed off, right? And that's just his his efficiency. We see his efficiency impaired constantly um, throughout uh, throughout this first book. Why? What's up with that? Now, I'm not wanting to answer all of these questions just now because I think we'll get we'll get more data, which we need to you know consider impassionately and everything as we move forward. Um, but uh, but I, I this this to me was a fascinating moment because she she seemed you know when she starts lecturing him here which offends him right you think now to teach me my trade you know it's like yeah Thufer shut up and listen right she's right she's describing exactly what you're not doing right now right you are so focused on on uh, your suspicion of her because you distrust her not because it's likely that she is the traitor but because uh but because you just have an issue um yeah yeah um Chris Swank points out that both Mentats are plagued by their emotions. Uh, Thufer by jealousy uh, and hatred of Bene Gesserit. Piter by his lust for Jessica. Um, his underestimating of Ewood's uh, hatred of Harkonnens. Um, as a school of logical thinkers, Chris says, I'm not impressed. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I agree. I agree. And it is fascinating that the two examples that we get of that, uh, of Mentats, both of them seem to sort of have their issue here. Um, James Stevens was just pointing out the same thing. Piter has a lot of flaws as well. Um, yeah, and Stephen Sean Wolf points out correctly. Remember that Piter is a twisted mentat, right? That you know that this is something he is. The Baron has molded him in certain ways, um, but um, so that's true. True enough to remember, but uh, but still, it's it's it's. Interesting to see. So let's hang on to that. We'll come back to this as we can continue to consider Thufir all the way through. And by the way, um, just to, to to sort of a spoiler for the end, there are conversation. You know where this conversation is headed. Um, there are a number of things. One of the things that I find so fascinating um, and uh, and and provocative about the end of this book is all of the questions that are not fully answered at the end of this book. And I think that this is one of them. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of ground for us to cover, even at the end, in trying to understand 
in retrospect, okay, what happened with Thufir Hawat in this over the course of this book? Um, it's never gonna be spelled out for us. Um, so I, I think uh, I, anyway, just. But that's why I want to pay attention to it. I think it's going to be something to re that'll be really interesting to discuss together as we go through. Um, okay. Um, one more Thufir quotation, and uh, I, I bet you suspected I couldn't resist this one. The end of their conversation. Then I'll pose another question for you. What does it mean to you that you stand before another human, that you are bound and helpless, and the other human holds a knife at your throat? Yet this other human refrains from killing you, frees you from your bonds, and gives you the knife to use as you will. She lifted herself out of the chair, turned her back on him. You may go now, Thufer. The old men tatarose, hesitated, hand creeping toward the deadly weapon beneath his tunic. He was reminded of the bull ring, of the bull ring and of the duke's father, who'd been brave, no matter what his other failings, and one day of the Corrida long ago. The fierce black beast had stood there, head bowed, immobilized and confused. The old duke had turned his back on the horns, cape thrown flamboyantly over one arm, while cheers rained down from the stands. I am the bull, and she the matador, Hawat thought. He withdrew his hand from the weapon, glanced at the sweat glistening on his empty palm. He knew that whatever the facts proved to be in the end, he would never forget this moment, nor lose this sense of supreme admiration for the Lady Jessica. Okay, as Neil says, now we know the story, right? The, uh, the, the, the true kernel, the true essence of this book that has been unfolded to us slowly, that is what really happened in the bull ring with the old duke, right? Uh, we've gotten lots of hints, and here we go. Um, yeah, Tom Hillman points out, but the bull charged and killed the duke, and he doesn't kill Jessica, right? Yeah, I'm the bull and she the matador, but he doesn't do it, right? Um, yeah, yeah, fascinating, isn't it? Um, interesting that he identifies himself with the bull. Um, yeah, yeah, um... Brian Fatterini points out he's uh, perhaps a little more human than animal after all. Yeah, yeah. Um, though, though Kevin points out that she is the human of the situation. Yes, exactly. He sees himself in that in the bestial role, right? He recognizes that he is the bull and she's the matador, um, and that seems to go along with her implications about him being unnatural, right? Him not acting like a regular human, and yet. Um, as uh, as Brian was just pointing out, I think very fairly, the choice that he makes shows he's not going to live up to that, right? There may be no difference between the bull and the matador. Um, as for, you know, it doesn't really matter which side of the hall you put them on, right? Um, there's no real difference, but he uh, he he pulls away from it. Um, yeah, yeah, um, Jonathan points out, Jonathan Spencer points out, but Jessica refers to herself as another human, which suggests that she sees Thufir as human. Yeah, Jonathan, that implies to me that the bullring metaphor is really in Thufir's head only. I, you know, she, I don't think she's thinking of the old duke here, right? She's certainly not thinking of herself in the role of the old duke. I mean, again, think of the irony of that, how much she loathed the man, right? And uh, and for her to be cast into that role in Thufir's head, uh, 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 crazy. But yeah, this is clearly she's not seeing it that way, 
right? She has seen this as an exchange between two humans. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, yeah, Kevin Morgan points out, uh, a bull is goaded by his feelings of rage towards the wrong target to his death. Um, uh, the red flag. Yeah, and Thufer isn't, that's what's happening to Thufer, right? But she's not the matador, right? The Baron Harkonnen is the matador here, not her. Um, he is being goaded. Um, he is being invited to, you know, charge um, and... Uh, that's so anyway. He's 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 wrong about that. But as Brian Yoder points out, also the fascinating thing at the end, right? He would never lose the admiration for what she did, whatever the facts proved to be. If she was not the traitor, this was a fantastic way to show it. And if she was the traitor, what a fantastic way to hide it, right? In fact, I think also his his. Um, metaphor of the bullring shows that he's convinced that she is guilty, right? Why? Bravura. If she is the traitor, what she just did is an act of bravura, as Tom Hillman just said, worthy of the old duke, right? It got the old duke killed. And I think perhaps he's thinking that it's going to get her killed. He's not going to do it right then, right? Um, but... Uh, but yeah, yeah, good. Erica Henson was just saying the same thing, too, about the bravura. Exactly, exactly. But again, he's misunderstanding. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, let me go on. I've, th here's this next one. I love this passage. Um, this is the beginning of the chapter in which the betrayal occurs. So Leto is coming into the house, and he's just, he's, he's, he's like, got minutes before he's going to be uh, betrayed to his death. Okay. Leto stood in the foyer of his house, studying a note by the light of a single suspenser lamp. Dawn was yet a few hours away, and he felt his tiredness. A friend messenger had brought the note to the outer guard just now as the Duke arrived from his command post. The note read, A column of smoke by day, a pillar of fire by night. There was no signature. What does it mean? he wondered. The messenger had gone without waiting for an answer, and before he could be questioned, he had slipped into the night like some smoky shadow. Now, my question, what does it mean? And I ask this because I have no idea myself what this means. Now, I, I, I can help unpack it a little bit. I do get the reference. Um, the quotation, a column of smoke by day, a pillar of fire by night, is Dallas a quote from the Orange Catholic Bible. Um, I'm not sure Catholic Bible. I can tell you what its context is in the Bible with which I'm familiar. Um, this is, uh, this is a, 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 yeah, this, this is a quote from, um, this is a quote from Exodus. Um, it's about, so this after the, uh, the Israelites flee from Egypt, they've gone through the Exodus, they are being guided, they are guided by God in the wilderness, right? So the people of, the people of God are being guided by him, um, and he takes the form of a, of a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night, and he goes before the Israelites and brings them to the Red Sea, which for a time sounds like a bad idea until the whole parting of the Red Sea thing. Um, so it's speaking of divine guidance of the people to the way of escape. Now this all sounds really attractive from a Fremen point of view, right? Thinking of the Fremen prophecies and, and, uh, and everything. So, okay. Um, I could understand it 
if um, you know if if like some of the fremen were just like sending notes to Paul or something, um, but this is not. This is uh, um, this is a note to the Duke. Trevor Brierly suggests maybe it means flee, since the Israelites had to flee before they would see the column of smoke and the pillar of fire. Yeah, it's post-exodus, that is, post-departure uh, post from Egypt. Pre-parting of the Red Sea, post-departure from Egypt. Um, so, yeah, we can understand this as a message that just means... Um, uh, that just means get the heck out. Um, uh, but... Um, but it's kind of odd, isn't it? Um, uh, I mean, who sent that? And what? That's really cryptic. If that's the if that's the uh, um, if that's the answer, yeah. I mean, Nancy says he can't interpret it that way. Yeah. I mean, how would he interpret it that way? Um, James says, "Is it the Fremen trying to say?" Uh, that they're willing to help the Duke if he needs it. In which case, what? He's the Israelites, and they're what? God? The Red Sea? <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's a little hard. Um, uh, okay, Brian Federini thinks it's a reference to Tuik. Okay, how? Explain, Brian, I don't get it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, guiding his house through the wilderness? Yes, yes. Um, possibly. Um, possibly. There are a couple levels on which I'm trying to understand this passage. And on both levels, I'm failing to understand this passage. One is simply the plot level. That is, to the best of our understanding, what are the people involved thinking? Right? The Fremen who sent this note. Who were they? What exactly are they trying to say? And why did they think this would be an effective way to say it to the Duke? And the Duke, how is he understanding this? He's not, apparently, understanding this. Um, as he is asking, what does it mean? Um, so that's one level in which I want to understand it, but the but the other level in which I want to understand it is how does it work within the within the overall structure of this story? Why do we get this bit? Um, this is one of those passages that always really stands out to me in a book like this, um, and it stands out to me because it seems totally unnecessary. Nothing comes of this, right? It's not. Uh, it's one of those things that's just kind of tossed out there, right? It's, it has no impact on the plot whatsoever. But there it is, right? Uh, and the whole biblical quotation, and in particular, I mean, the kind of tantalizing relevance in a general sense of that particular uh, biblical illusion in this context, right? That um, uh, you know the whole, the idea of the deliverance from the people um, from oppression 
into the you know and 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 then being led out into the wilderness that you know that all seems tolerably relevant you add the fact of the sort of the messianic stuff with Paul and it, so if you think of the Atreides as the Israelites it works if you think of the Fremen as the Israelites it works um so you know that's that that all that all seems to uh, again it's it's sort of tantalizingly relevant and yet i don't feel like i can fit it confidently into the whole overall structure. It, it, it's... I don't have a satisfying reading of this passage, and it bothers me that I don't. Um, so, uh, anyway. Um, Brian Federini says, it seems to me to be related to Kind's hopes for the Atreides. Um, yeah, that seems likely. I mean, my answer to the question, who sent the note? Um, it's got to be kind. Or, I mean, or at least it's, it's got to be happening with kind's approval at the very least. We saw at the dinner party, one of the primary things which happened at the dinner party, you know, many things occurred, but one of the clear turning point events of that dinner party was essentially the loyalty. Kinds made his choice at that dinner party. Um, uh, that was relatively clear, that he, he is acting in the context of that dinner party. He is already acting in defense of the Atreides at that point. Um, he's not outwardly committed himself to anything there, but he, um, uh, he's, 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 clearly, he's clearly, his change of heart, he was already having leanings before, but his change of heart has happened. Um, this kind of you know, a Fremen is not going to send a message like this to the Duke without at least kinds of knowledge. So, so Liette clearly, you know, is either the source of it or approves of it. Um, but um, anyway, um, yeah. Let's see, Brian says the column of smoke reminds me of the desert storm that Paul fl flies into. Brian yet also reminds me of the uh, the dust cloud from a, a you know from the, the the spice crawler as well, right? Um, uh, Lots of things, the, you know, the 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 pillar of fire. We get several things which are reminiscent of that. Not the least of which will be the explosions from the artillery that's about to break out in the night. Um, but yeah, I see again. Um, these things are. It's why I find this passage so tantalizing. I feel like. Not only do I feel like this must be important, I have this kind of sense, this kind of instinct, that this passage could be pivotal, uh, could provide um, the key to a particular reading of this text, which would be really, really cool. I just can't sort it out yet. I haven't, I, you know, again, it, it all seems to kind of fit, but, uh, but I... I don't know how. Um, maybe someday, maybe when I read this book a couple more times, it will come to me. Nancy Fosberg is teasing me. My instinct for significance. Yeah, it is, it is kind of like that, actually. Uh, uh, Paul White has an instinct for rightness, and I have an instinct that this passage is important. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, maybe uh, maybe more will happen that will make sense of it later on. Um, so maybe we'll come back to it. But I, I couldn't I couldn't uh, I couldn't pass it over entirely because uh, you know it, it just seems to 
Anyway, I wanted to share it, see if you guys, you know, get you guys thinking about it too, and then you'll be better prepared to help me with it later on. If any brilliant insights come to you, uh, send those to me by email, and we can maybe talk about it next week. Um, one glimpse at the Harkonnens on the way out. A pity to waste such fighting men as the Dukes, he thought. He smiled more broadly, laughing at himself. Pity should be cruel. He nodded. Failure was, by definition, expendable. The whole universe sat there, open to the man who could make the right decisions. The uncertain rabbits had to be exposed, made to run for their burrows. How else could you control them and breed them? And, and breed them? He pictured his fighting men as bees routing the rabbits, and he thought, the day hums sweetly when you have enough bees working for you. Um... Isn't that odd now? Um, what a strange metaphor, isn't it? He pictured his fighting men as bees routing the rabbits. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nancy Fosberg says, The Bene Gesserits are all about breeding. The Baron is about evolution. Also, bees? <laughs> Nancy, that is exactly my thought. Um, I was, I was like, Bees are an odd choice. Stephen Schoenwolf says the same thing. I can't think of any time where bees attack rabbits. Um, no, I can't either. Uh, I mean, who thinks that way? You know, uh, imagining your enemies to be rabbits is fine. I mean, like, that seems normal enough. But, uh, but to imagine your own men not as, say, hounds pursuing them, or even less flatteringly, you know, ferrets, uh, you know, pursuing them and tearing them to pieces underground. No, bees. Bees. My men are bees, for some reason, attacking uh, the, <laughs> the, 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 the rabbits. Uh, Gerald says, maybe the Baron isn't that familiar with the natural world. Yeah, awkward metaphor. Not actually, bees don't attack rabbits, in fact, Baron. Though, again, the very unnaturalness of it seems appropriate uh, to the Harkonnens as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jesse, you're 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 right. Je Jesse Tumblin says it's, he has this image of like Winnie the Pooh meeting Watership Down, um, except when you put those two things like together in the mind uh, of an evil pedophile, it, it gets really disturbing. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, there can be. Um, Tom Hillman is suggesting he sees his men as mindless drones, and uh, both Neil and Sean are pointing out that you know bees, uh, you know bees very often die after they sting. You know, sort of seeing sort of his men as expendable. You know, Trevor is suggesting he thinks of them as bees. Uh, his men as bees, which sort of shows his own contempt uh, for the men who serve him. Um, that um, that that seems sort of. Fair. I mean, it seems almost all to just be building up to that last time. The day hums sweetly when you have enough bees working for you. Um, you know, the sound of his fighters at work exterminating the, the Atreides is a sweet hum in his ears, right? Um, a hum as of bees. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Tom points out, you know, the Atreides men are taking refuge in holes in the ground. Yeah, I agree. The rabbit metaphor works. Oh, that's all perfectly fine. It's the bee metaphor that's the problem. Um, uh, 
again, not even hornets or something genuinely aggressive, but just bees. Um, um, anyway, so certainly uh, it's certainly another way to sort of distinguish um, the Baron Harkonnen from uh, from 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 Duke Leto, of course. Um, you know, you think of the respect that Duke Leto has for his men, and you know how much he cares for his people. The thing which initially starts to win kinds over. Um, that you know, there, there there couldn't be howsoever unclear the Baron's metaphor might be. Um, his own attitude towards his men is made, um, I think, quite clear. Um, by this, but um, uh, uh, but anyway, um, it's uh, it, it does seem to sort of suggest now. You know, Kevin, Kevin is on to an interesting theory here. Kevin says rabbits are larger and more able to defend themselves. Um, in theory, the bees are a nagging, dangerous pest. It is almost like he recognizes that, like one on one. I mean, if you really had, if somehow you could convince the principals involved to engage in such a thing, if you really had a death match between a rabbit and a bee, I'm thinking the rabbit takes him, right? I mean, especially, I mean, you know, being a fan of Water Trip Down, I mean, there's no question. But, uh, but anyway, you know, I mean, that would be any, you know. So it's perhaps there's there's a kind of recognition here. He's not if he just said like, ah, the Duke's men are rabbits and my men are are you know ferocious hounds. That would be dumb and untrue. And he know would know it to be untrue. He's not winning this battle because his warriors are so intrinsically superior. You know that. Um, you know, he's not going into this with this, oh, any one Harkonnen soldier is the equivalent of five uh, puny Atreides soldiers. He knows that that's in fact untrue, that the Atreides men are better one-on-one -on -one than his men. Um, he has just trapped them. They are, uh, uh, they are uncertain rabbits, as Stephen Schoenwolf was pointing out, the emphasis on the word uncertain, the uncertain rabbits had to be exposed, made to run for their burrows. Um, yes, they were larger and stronger, but they were uncertain. They were jumpy, um, and they, ran, they took flight when the swarm of bees attacked them. Um, and as Roy points out, his emphasis is, is on when you have enough bees. Um, when you have enough bees working for you is when the uh, the day hums sweetly. Um, so, and of course, they make honey for you. Um, but uh, anyway, so I, I, for several reasons, one, I found that metaphor fascinating. But, but again, just to sort of throw, I wanted to kind of throw this into the mix of different different grids that we've been looking at, right? We, we, we get a little glimpse of the Baron's grid here, how he looks at the world, how he assesses people, um, and, uh, the, you know, notice his how he sort of contradicts himself there. A pity to waste such fighting men as the Dukes, but then, you know, failure was, by definition, expendable, right? Um, but they failed, right? Therefore, they were expendable. Um, uh, anyway, it's it's uh, uh, you know his, the Baron's grid is one of those grids that I want us to be coming to understand a little bit as we move through. And of course, as Tom points out, animal imagery, right, um, which shouldn't surprise us uh, at this point. All right, one more, and then we'll get to the scene that I really want to talk about. <laughs> okay. 
I can't just leave. Having spent all the better part of two weeks on Duke Leto, I couldn't just not talk about his death scene at all. Leto sensed memories rolling in his mind, the old toothless mutterings of hags, the room, the table, the baron, a pair of terrified eyes, blue within blue the eyes, all compressed around him in ruined symmetry. There was a man with a, with a boot-toe chin, a toy man falling. The toy man had a broken nose slanted to the left, an offbeat metronome caught forever at the start of an upward stroke. Leto heard the crash of crockery, so distant, a roaring in his ears. His mind was a bin without end, catching everything, everything that had ever been, every shout, every whisper, every silence. One thought remained to him. Leto saw it in formless light on rays of black. The day the flesh shapes, and the flesh the day shapes. The thought struck him with a sense of fullness he knew he could never explain. Silence. Um, this is one of the most fascinating moments to me of our shifting narrative perspective, right? Um, this glimpse into the Duke's mind in his very final moments. There are things we could talk about here. Um, Piter's eyes and the ruined symmetry, um, the, 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 the guard captain's broken nose uh, as an offbeat metronome, um, his mind as a bin without end catching everything. These are all things that would be uh, uh, worthy to um, uh, talk about. What I mostly want to touch on before we move on to Paul is that last thought, right? The, a great deal of narrative pressure is put on that, right? Um, everything that had ever been, every shout, every whisper, every silence. End of paragraph. And I always think he's dead. But then, wait, 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 no, he's not dead yet. One thought remained to him. Okay. The one thought. Leto saw it in formless light on rays of black. Okay, okay. Spotlight on the thought. The day the flesh shapes, and the flesh the day shapes. The thought struck him with a sense of fullness he knew he could never explain. More spotlight on the thought. Um, okay. Yeah, Tom, you're right. Uh, uh, we shouldn't pass over that entirely. The uh, everything that had ever been, every shout, every whisper. Um, Tom Hillman is pointing out, it sounds like what the Cuisance Haderach can see. You know, he too is the part of the genetic engineering of the Bene Gesserit. Um, he is one generation removed from the Cuisance Haderach. Um, I agree. That's an interesting, that's an interesting thing. Um, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Kevin Morgan points out, as is the Baron, yeah, two, two, two generations removed. But yes, 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 um, he's close, he's close. The day the flesh shapes, and the flesh the day shapes. What does it mean? What is Ducleto's final insight as he dies? Tom Hillman says, the day and flesh shaping each other, he's thinking of Paul. That seems likely. That seems likely. Um, 
you've got the two things, right? Now, let, let's simplify it, which might be unfair, but we'll do it anyway. Um, forget flesh for a second. If we take flesh for the moment to be, you know, being used metaphorically or more accurately being used synecdotally uh, for a person, right? So we're talking about like the, the relationship between time and people, between the day and the person. Um, the day, the flesh, so the, you know, a day is shaped by the person, but the person is also shaped by the time, right? The person is also shaped by the day. Um, that certainly seems relevant Tom to Paul, doesn't it? Right? Even in the even in the Duke's mind here, um, that you know, sort of this final thought of how the time he is going to shape the time, and the time is going to shape him. Um, or is it about himself? Right? Um, that is, is it about how he has tried to shape his day, and how he himself has been shaped by it? Or is it a general insight into the fact that that's how all things happen, right? That there is this sort of mutual relationship. Um, it's sort of a larger question about, as Patrick says, about destiny and free will. Um, some things are done to you, some things you do. Do you determine destiny and affect the destiny of others? Yes, the day is shaped by the flesh, but at the same time, the flesh is also shaped by the day. You're never quite as free as you think you are. Um, and you're only given this narrow parameter in which to act. Now, let's think of the actual terms, because he doesn't talk about time and people. He talks about the day and the flesh. Notice how both of those things are kind of a simplification, right? Just sort of down to, a, down to an element. Um, flesh is shaped by day. Right, you know, the you know the idea of people again. I assume he's thinking of people, um, and uh, but but he's thinking of them in a very detached, an extremely impersonal way. He's not even recognizing them as not as question of humans or animals. He's not even thinking of them as entities, but as substance. Right, what they are made of, um, their flesh. Um, flesh is shaped by the day. This, of course, we will see this happening over the course of the book. You know, all of the emphasis has already been some emphasis, and will be more on the water on the water fat flesh of the outworlders, right? As their flesh will be changed, they will they will get the, you know, the dried out, desiccated look that uh, that that people on Arrakis have. Um, Nancy Fosberg very appropriately um, says that flesh also makes me think of the Baron, absolutely. Um, Baron is certainly very fleshy indeed, right? That seems a, seems a quite fair association. Um, the flesh shapes the day, but the day also shapes the flesh. Um, the thought struck him with a sense of fullness he knew he could never explain. Um, um, yeah, yeah. His final insight seems to be into this question of destiny and choice. Don't worry, I'm not going to start talking about Boethius. Um, but uh, um, 
I think that that's going to be, you know, whether or not he's thinking of Paul, I don't know, he might be thinking about himself, he might be thinking about the Baron, he might be thinking about all of these things. Um, he might be recognizing in his dying moment some kind of abstract truth. But in any case, if we're understanding that sentence properly, it certainly does relate to what we're going to be seeing and the struggles that Paul is going to be going through through the rest of the story. And with that seamless segue, let us look at the awakening of Paul's awareness. Okay. Since, you know, class is already three quarters done and everything, I decided we're now going to start the thing I wanted to spend the whole class on. Something had happened. Now, I, I, I said I want to go through this passage carefully. Um, uh, the, the, you know, so there's like 20 pages that we're going to go through. Not quite pages. We're going to skip some bits, but there's going to be uh, uh, most of it I want to look at because I want to be looking at the whole, the progression of ideas here. Okay. Something had happened to his awareness this night. He saw with sharpened clarity every circumstance and occurrence around him. He felt unable to stop the inflow of data or the cold precision with which each new item was added to his knowledge and the computation was centered in his awareness. It was meant at power and more. Paul thought back to the moment of impotent rage as the strange thopter dived out of the night onto them, stooping like a giant hawk above the desert with wind screaming through its wings. The thing in Paul's mind had happened then. The thopter had skidded and slewed across a sand ridge toward the running figures, his mother and himself. Paul remembered how the smell of burned sulfur from abrasion of thopter skids against sand had drifted across them. All of these small data, right, he, he, he has logged. His mother, he knew, had turned, expected to meet a laze gun in the hands of Harkonnen mercenaries, and had recognized Duncan Idaho leaning out of the thopter's open door, shouting, Hurry, there's worm sign south of you. But Paul had known as he turned who, who piloted the thopter. An accumulation of minutiae in the way it was flown, the dash of the landing, the clues so small even his mother hadn't detected them, had told Paul precisely who sat at those controls. Okay. Um, Sean says he loves the phrase, accumulation of minutiae. I agree. Uh, I could say that phrase... Uh, for a while, accumulation of minutiae. There's something in the sound of it, which is really cool. Um, okay. First, one of the time, one of the things that I've heard objected to about Paul is people say like he he becomes really insufferable. Um, you know, he's like, oh, Paul becomes like the Superman who knows everything, right? He's like, oh, you know, and and uh, he can see all these things that his that his mother can't see, and like this is the point at which he becomes, you know, this like totally unsympathetic Superman. Careful. We have to be careful about that. Notice that's not how it's described. Look at how this event is depicted for us here, right? Um, first, we get that first paragraph in which his mental processes are described. And it's clearly described to be like Mentat power, right? The inflow of data, cold precision, his knowledge and the computation, right? All of those things suggest Mentat power. We've already been told that he's been being trained for a Mentat, that he has that capacity, right? So, okay. Um, uh, he, uh, but it's but it's not just that. It was Mentat power and more. Well, okay, from that first paragraph, it just kind of sounded like Mentat power. So it was more. What else is it? Second paragraph, we learn 
that there was a particular moment when this happened, right? Um, and that was the moment in which he had this experience. What was the experience that he had? The experience that he had, you know, we, we get the description of what occurred. The fourth paragraph there is what describes what happened. An accumulation of minutiae and the way it was flown, the dash of the landing, clues so small even his mother hadn't detected them, had told Paul precisely who sat at those controls. What happened was he just knew it was Duncan Idaho. How? By some kind of mystic insight? No, by the accumulation of minutiae, by being a superior observer to a trained Bene Gesserit, right? And remember, the trained observation is one of the things that the Bene Gesserits are trained in. We've been told from the very, from chapter one, that this is a major part of the Bene Gesserit training. He's been trained to observe tiny things, tiny indicators that most people don't notice that enable him to draw conclusions about people. Right, so okay, um, he uh, so so he is drawing conclusions that so so that still kind of sounds like mentat stuff, right? Though, so he's 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 mentatting, but he's also out benegesering out benegesering. I don't know how to make that a verb. The benegesering, right? Okay, but notice the, to me the really interesting thing about this. Okay. But this just started happening, like all of a sudden, like all of a sudden I became, you know, um, everything just kind of clicked, and now all of a sudden I'm a mega mentat Bene Gesserit guy, right? No, look at second paragraph there. The thing in Paul's mind had happened then. The thing in Paul's mind had happened then. Yeah, some kind of switch turn flips right something occurs he can he can point to the so this is not just I've always been really smart and this is the moment when I began to exert my intelligence right no and yes he's been trained as a Bene Gesserit and he's always been good at that but this is not like I've been getting in bed and I've finally gotten a hang of the learning curve no and this is like I'm training to be a mentat and I have the capacity and now all of a sudden I've no it's all of a sudden whap, all of them come together now he goes from Mentat in training to Super Mentat. He goes from Bene Gesserit in training to Super Bene Gesserit. And it's a thing which happens at this particular moment. And he describes it as, and it, the narrator describes it as a thing that happens in Paul's mind. As if it happens to him, not from him. Let's carry on. Remembering the letter, Paul re-experienced the distress of that moment, a thing sharp and strange that seemed to happen outside his new mental alertness. He had read that his father was dead, known the truth of the words, but had felt them as no more than another datum to be entered in his mind and used. I loved my father, Paul thought, and knew this for truth. I should mourn him. I should feel something. But he felt nothing except, here's an important fact. It was one with all the other facts. All the while, his mind was adding sense impressions, extrapolating, computing. Okay, so he is um, uh, he is uh, 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 mentating. Now, hang on a second. Several of you are making suggestions, which are perfectly sensible suggestions in their own right, but I'm going to resist them. Let me explain. Several of you are making suggestions about, you know, like, 
this sort of moment is being triggered by the uh, by his sort of the, his stress or his rage. Um, a couple of you are talking about sort of ways in which people respond, like he's going into shock or he's, you know. It, it, yes, we could do that, right? That is to say, we could apply psychology to Paul in this moment and use that as a grid, that is, use modern psychology as a grid through which to see Paul here. I would urge us not to do that um, because that's a grid that we're imposing upon the text and I want to make sure that we are seeing what the narrator is trying to tell us about what's going on with Paul. Um, don't forget, this is going to sound dumb, Paul's not a real person. Right. He doesn't have psychology. He's a character. And this is a moment in which something is happening to a character. And we have to keep ourselves focused, not on how we would understand this if we were talking to a real guy and he were describing these symptoms. How would we understand that? Because that's not what's happening. Right? What is going on within this story? Um, and let's focus on what the text itself is here emphasizing. How, what kind of a grid is the text providing us to understand what's going on with Paul, if that makes sense. Okay, we're getting again all of these mentat cues, right? Um, all of this mentat language that's being used, his perfect emotional detachment, right? Thufar Hawat would love that kind of, probably love. He would love it so much it would impair his efficiency. That kind of detachment, right? He has achieved not only excellent, in fact, you know, superior or extreme mentat computational efficiency, but he has also achieved spontaneous and perfect sort of absolute mentat detachment, emotional detachment as well. Notice that this is sort of against his own will, right? He is wondering, I should feel something, right? He knows that he should be grieving, but he can't grieve. Right, um, he 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 is aware of the fact he is examining his own feelings and is aware of the fact that he is feeling nothing. Um, but he's aware of the fact that that is an alien thing. Right, this is not like I therefore come to the conclusion that I didn't actually care about my dad very much. He knows that he loves his father. Right, he knows that he loves his father. He knows that mourning is the natural response to losing his father, that he should mourn, that he should feel something, but he doesn't. Um, again, something has happened to him. Um, notice what he re-experiences there. He re-experienced the distress of that moment. So when he, he remembers reading the letter for the first time, right, and he was distressed when he remember the thing didn't happen until Duncan Idaho's Thopter came down. At the time, he experienced distress, and when he remembers it, he re-experiences that distress—a thing sharp and strange that seemed to happen outside his new mental alertness. So you've got his spontaneous experience of emotion, which he no longer has, but which he can recall and sort of re-experience in memory. But when he re-experiences it, his mental alertness is separate from that, and he can turn and examine even that re-experience of emotion with his new mental alertness, um, as it's described here. Um, 
and his mind is continuing to add sense impressions, extrapolating, computing, and is gathering all these data and putting things together. So this first impulse is this, again, it's still, um, as Kevin says, it's still an alien thing. It does seem to be, it's described as as an alien thing. Um, good, Brian Federini made a great point that his lack of grieving seems to offend his sense of rightness. Um, yeah, yeah, it does. Um, uh, good, good. Um, <laughs> Nancy Fosberg says, seriously though, his emotional detachment is the least strange thing that's going on with him here. Uh, yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. It's just kind of drawing attention to what's going on here, isn't it? Um, but anyway, okay, so, so, again, so, the, so the two things that I'm kind of holding on to so far about what we see happening to Paul, um, you know, what is this thing that has occurred to him in this moment, is that one, it seems to be going primarily in the Mintat direction, right? We've got the observations, the super Bene Gesserit observation thing, or rather the superior to a Bene Gesserit observations that he was doing, but that was data gathering, right? Feeding into the extrapolation and computation, helping him to figure stuff out, the ability to pursue chains of reasoning to their end and come to logical conclusions, not just to figure out like what has happened, but to see possibilities and potentials, right? To figure out, to weigh probabilities and decide what is the likeliest, you know, all of these things which a mentat is supposed to do. That's why you have a mentat, right? That's Thufer's job uh, is to figure this stuff out. Okay, so all of these pieces are coming together for him. This is the first stage, and also that it's coming together in him. It's not him doing it, okay? Um, uh, now, um, let's keep going. Jessica turned away, frightened of the bitter strength in her son's voice. Notice there's sometimes when I'm skipping a little bit, but I, I'm, 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 I'm not skipping all that much. Um, if you want to open your text to the passage, you'll be able to see where we're going here, um, and, uh, and that might help you to sort of keep track of when we jump ahead a little bit. Jessica turned away, frightened of the bitter strength in her son's voice, hearing the precise assessment of chances. She sensed that his mind had leaped ahead of her. <laughs> yeah. And now it saw more in some respects than she did. One or two respects. She had helped train the intelligence which did this, but now she found herself fearful of it. Her thoughts turned, seeking toward the lost sanctuary of her duke, and tears burned her eyes. This is the way it had to be, Leto, she thought. A time of love and a time of grief. She rested her hand on her abdomen, awareness focused on the embryo there. I have the Atreides' daughter I was ordered to produce, but the Reverend Mother was wrong. A daughter wouldn't have saved my Leto. This child is only life reaching for the future in the midst of death. I conceived out of instinct and not out of obedience. Okay. So, brief passage here about Jessica, not about Paul and his awareness, right? We turn our, notice the, the, the first person narrative has, has jumped into Jessica's head here, right? And notice what we see in Jessica's head, or from the vantage point of Jessica's head, what do we see? First, in that first paragraph, how radically she underestimates what's going on with him, right? Um, this serves to emphasize the strangeness of what's happening in him. Make Nothing could make it clear. Okay, nothing. Uh, anyway, it certainly makes it very clear that uh, what is happening to him is not normal, right? This is not part of the training. This is not part of the... This is not just like Paul's being a little bit precocious, right? No, this is something has happened. He has made a leap 
which she can't even calculate, right? She's like, wow, I, um, you know, uh, I, I you know, she's looking at me like, man, I trained him good, right? And he's really picking up on this. Uh, no, she's 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 recognizing, okay, something's happened here, but we know from having been in Paul's head just a second ago uh, to now, we can see that she's 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 underestimating the significance of that, and then she turns to thinking about the Duke. Um, yeah, Philip says, I like the, in some respects, yeah, yeah, me, me too. Um, uh, doesn't that, doesn't that read, I mean, that sounds like dramatic irony now, doesn't it, right? Um, you know, she saw that, you know, he, he's, he, she saw it uh, more in some respects than she did, right? Um, yeah, 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 just, just a few respects there. Um, then she talks about the Duke and her insight into the Reverend Mother and, by extension, the whole Bene Gesserit plan, right? Um, the Reverend Mother was wrong. A daughter wouldn't have saved my Leto. First of all, did the Reverend Mother say that? She didn't say it would save Leto, right? She said a, an Atreides daughter might have been married to a Harkonnen uh, son and healed the breach. Um, that is, ended the war between the Atreides and the Harkonnen. didn't say anything about saving Leto, right? For the father, nothing. I'm not sure that would have changed. Um, but um, anyway, um, this child is only life reaching for the future in the midst of death, um, which is a fascinating way to think about uh, uh, Alia's life, but um, even more so, seems to be a characterization of her uh, life, right? Um, she is the one who is reaching out for the future in the midst of death, even before the battle, being there on Arrakis, they were in the midst of death and under constant threat of death. Um, she conceived out of instinct, it seems, because she was reaching for the, f she was life reaching for the future in the midst of death. Um, she conceived out of instinct and out of love, right? I have the Atreides daughter I was ordered to produce, but again, it's ironic, right? She didn't do it out of obedience. She's not being a dutiful Bene Gesserit now. Um, uh, she is, uh, she's doing it out of instinct, and clearly one of those instincts she just described, life reaching for the future in the midst of death, the other is, I would think, still her love for the Duke her love for Leto. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, Nancy Fosberg makes another good point. She says, throughout this scene, Jessica transforms from a really powerful person who's on top of everything to, I don't want to say an incompetent mess, but maybe Paul would say so. Um, yeah, the, the gap. I mean, it's not just she's in charge and Paul is following her lead to, like, Paul is now ahead. He shoots so far ahead, she does look like an incompetent mess compared to him. Um, I agree. Um, I think this is one of the things that is one of the things that makes to me this scene so effective 
Um, we could read this scene and say, here's Jessica's character being demoted, right? She was a great, strong, powerful character, and now she's just going to be like a satellite orbiting her son, right? Um, yes, I mean, to some extent, of course, that's true, but it's only because her son has gone Nova here. Um, but more importantly, I think about the effect of this, right? And here again, I go back to um, the effectiveness of Herbert's quite unusual narrative technique, the way he keeps zooming in and out of people's heads like this. Um, getting Jessica's thoughts here, it's a little refreshing, right? Paul's new awareness is really strange, and it feels very alien. Even the prose describing it, and you, you know, um, you know, focus on how this goes and look back at the last passage, right? Um, uh, I loved my father, Paul thought, and knew this for truth. I should mourn him. I should feel something. But he felt nothing except, here's an important fact. It was one with all the other facts. All the while, his mind was adding sense impressions, extrapolating, computing, right? I just think stylistically, these clipped-off paragraphs, these, these short sentences... Um, and then we return, refreshingly, to a human mind, right? Um, we now are using metaphor again, right? The child is only life reaching for the future in the midst of death. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's like we get a, we get a breath of, of, of human, um, human perspective. Her feelings, right, for the Duke, her grief... Uh, for Leto, compared to his, like, <clears throat> I consider it fascinating that I am, you know, feeling no emotion. I should be feeling emotion. What's happening to me? We don't know yet. Um, but, uh, um, but again, she gives us a kind of a, a kind of a, 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 a reference, uh, you know, a frame of reference here, right? Um, again, part of that frame of reference is human emotion and what she's thinking, even the extent to which she is underestimating what's going on is itself, even in its way, kind of refreshing. Jumping ahead a little bit in their conversation. You're suggesting the guild itself controls this planet? Jessica asks him. She was so slow. No, he said. The Fremen. They're, playing, they're paying the guild for privacy, paying in a coin that's freely available to anyone with desert power. Spice. This is more than a second approximation answer. It's the straight-line computation. Depend on it. Paul, Jessica said, you're not a Mentat yet. You can't know for sure how I'll never be a Mentat, he said. I'm something else, a freak. Paul, how can you say such? Leave me alone. He turned away from her, looking out into the night. Why can't I mourn, he wondered. He felt that every fiber of his being craved this release, but it would be denied him forever. Jessica had never heard such distress in her son's voice. She wanted to reach out to him, hold him, comfort him, help him, but she sensed that there was nothing she could do. He had to solve this problem by himself. Okay. Um, we see him mentating again, right? And she notices it, right? You know, sort of confirming that our 
assessment of that has been right, right? You know, we, we you know, looking at this, we've been seeing Mentat as we go along. She confirms, she Paul, you're not a Mentat yet, right? Confirm, it's like, you're talking like a Mentat, right? Again, it's more than the second than a second approximation answer. It's the straight line computation. That's how Mentats talk, right? Even though we've never heard a Mentat say that, that's surely how they talk. Um, but, uh, um, and we see him concluding things that have been hinted at and which we have gotten a little bit of insight into because we've gotten inside of Kynes' head at times and so therefore we know some things that Paul and the Atreides did not know. We see him coming in fact to uh, um, accurate conclusions, right? Figuring out things that nobody has figured out. Again, he's not you know, she's saying you're not a Mentat yet. And again, notice, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an irony here. He's right. We know that he's right, or at least we don't know it with quite as much certainty as we knew that Jessica was innocent uh, and not the traitor when she was being accused by Howitt. But, um, but again, we can be pretty confident that he's correct in his assessment here. And here she's thinking, you're still less than a Mentat. And he's like, no, I'm... I'll, I'm not a mentat, and I'll never be a mentat. I'm something else. Um, uh, what? Um, what? What is he? A freak. Okay, so he's just sounded like I have morphed, morphed into mega mentat, right? Um, including the perfect emotional dispassion. Uh, both Nancy and Erica are pointing out that um, although... He seems to be free of emotion. He's clearly he can clearly feel anger and annoyance. Um, yes, yes, um, but he can't mourn. He is upset, and he is upset with himself. So I, I think that that's an important observation, actually, that you guys are making, um, at Nancy and Erica. Um, it's not true that he's just been made into the perfect mentat spontaneously, right? Um, he's not. A perfect mentat. He's very upset. Um, Jessica can hear it, and presumably she's correct, not only because she's his mother, but because she's a Bene Gesserit, right? She had never heard such distress in her son's voice. He's really upset. This is presumably fueling, in part, his irritation and anger at his mother. Um, and he's upset about the fact that he can't mourn. Therefore, we're being invited to recognize this is not just Mentat dispassion. Um, there's something else going on here. Why can't he mourn? He knows how a human being should act. He's being made into an unnatural human here. He is being cut off from his human response, the human response that he knows he should have, that he actively wants to have, and it bothers him a lot. What is happening to him? He does not know what he is. I'll never be a mentat. I'm never going to complete my training. Um, but he doesn't know what he is. And he calls himself a freak. Um, uh, but he has to solve this problem. Uh, um, uh, solve this problem by himself. Um, okay, so... In what sense is he a freak? What's going on here? Okay. Paul's mind had gone on in its chilling precision. 
He saw the avenues ahead of them on this hostile planet. Without even the safety valve of dreaming, he focused his prescient awareness, seeing it as a computation of most probable futures, but with something more, an edge of mystery, as though his mind dipped into some timeless stratum and sampled the winds of the future. Abruptly, as though he had found a necessary key, Paul's mind climbed another notch in awareness. He felt himself cling, clinging to this new level, clutching at a precarious hold and peering about. It was as though he existed within a globe with avenues radiating away in all directions, yet this only approximated the sensation. All right. His mind climbs another notch in awareness. Notice, this is the first time now in this passage that we've had any reference to prescient awareness. Um, prescient, the, you know, the word which means, you know, knowledge or understanding of the future, right? To not know or understand in advance is, uh, would be sort of the literal translation of the word prescient. Um, this is the first time this comes in. He's been computing, right? He's been observing, and he's been computing, but it's all he's been doing so far. Or, you know, again, this sort of transformation happened to him, um, but, uh, uh, but we didn't have anything like that. Now we do, right? He continues to compute. He saw the avenues ahead of them on this hostile planet. Okay, so again, this seems to be him computing what is likeliest to happen. Again, a good mentat should be able to do that kind of computation. Um, what, are the, what are the likeliest outcomes? Considering all of the factors involved, and which paths are the most likely, which ones are likely to, you know, what consequences are likely to flow from each one. Again, these are computations that a mentat should be able to do, not in, a, not in order to be able to predict the future but in order to be able to choose what is the best course to do now, right? The more data you have, the more you can put things together, the better able you will be to be able to choose the course that's likely to work out as you want it to, right? But then in that second sentence, without even the safety valve of dreaming, he focused his prescient awareness. What does this tell us? What does this tell us? What, what do we learn from that half sentence there? We get our first reference to his prescient awareness. So now we, so he's aware of the future. He has knowledge or understanding of what comes, of what's going to happen, and he knows it in advance. And yes, Philip, Lord, I agree. This safety valve, right? He's had dreams before. Again, we learned that in chapter one and many of the dreams that he has come to pass. He has prescient awareness. He's always had prescient awareness, but it has been unconscious, right? Um, it's only come to him in dreams. Um, now we learn that that was a safety valve, right? Um, yeah, uh, uh, Philip Menzies is comparing the, the computation of the future. Uh, of course, the perfect, uh, uh, the, the ultimate example of that uh, is Harry Seldon, uh, yes, in the Foundation trilogy. Uh, exactly. Um, Harry Seldon was clearly a superior mentat who computed all of the likelihoods of things. Exactly. Um, this is where, it's, it's, it, this is the point in which Paul and Harry Seldon part ways. 
right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yes, Neil, you had mentioned that connection too. Um, sort of the the relationship between psychohistory and uh, and Paul's prescient awareness. Um, it's a fascinating issue. I think actually that that would be a there, there would be a really good paper in that. Um, to be thinking in some concrete ways, comparing and contrasting Harry Seldon's psychohistory with Paul's Prussian awareness. Um, certainly a lot to be done there. But we're not going to do it now because we haven't read the Foundation Trilogy uh, and that's uh, not what we're talking about. But it is an interesting connection um, and a good illustration of what I was talking about. However, carrying on here. Um, Without even the safety valve of dreaming, he focused his Prussian awareness. He's always had this awareness. The dreams were a safety valve, right? They were, they were the, you know, what does a safety valve do? It enables you to, you know, sort of release pressure to keep it from building up and exploding, right? Um, that's what the dreams, the prescient dreams were. Well, so what? It's, it's um, exploded now, right? Um, uh, he, he, his prescient awareness now comes within his conscious mind. But notice he still sees it in Mintat terms. He sees it as a computation of most probable futures, but with something more, an edge of mystery. So it's not just Mintat stuff. It's There's something else to it. What is it like? Well, it's as though his mind dipped into some timeless stratum and sampled the winds of the future. So the stratum right, gives us the, the, the metaphor of layers of things, right? So you're dipping down into the layers of time, sampling the winds of the future. So it's not, notice that's not a visual imagery, it's a, it's like a, a tactile imagery, right, dipping down through the, through the strata of time. Um, and there's something, it's, there's an edge of mystery, again, it's not just logical computation. There's something else here, there's some other kind of perception involved, um, some other experience of the future. And with that recognition, his mind climbs another notch in awareness. Notice the metaphor of him clinging, clutching at a precarious hold and peering about. He, what am I, right? I'm a freak. He doesn't understand what's happening to him, right? Again, he's not doing this. This is just all unfolding in his mind right now, right? Where is he? What is he doing? Who is he and what's going on? Um, when he his awareness climbs up, he begins to, you know, he, he begins to be able to sort of understand where he is. It's as though he existed within a globe with avenues radiating away in all directions. He can see all of these things, right? Okay. Um, uh, Continuing on, he remembered once seeing a gauze handkerchief blowing in the wind, and now he sensed the future as though it twisted across some surface as undulant and impermanent as that of the wind-blown kerchief. He saw people. He felt the heat and cold of uncounted probabilities. He knew names and places, experienced emotions without number, reviewed data of innumerable unexplored crannies. There was time to probe and test and taste but no time to shape. The day shapes the flesh. The, fle the day the flesh shapes. Anyway, the thing was a spectrum of possibilities from the most remote past to the most remote future, from the most probable to the most improbable. He saw his own death in countless ways. He saw new planets, new cultures, people. 
people. He saw them in such swarms that they could not be listed, yet his mind catalogued them, even the guildsmen. Okay. Um, <laughs> Nancy says, this sounds really stressful, doesn't it though? Um, yes, yes. Um, uh, and Neil is pointing out that he, hey look, he does see a guildsman, uh, uh, though only in his mind. Um, yes, yes. Okay. First, the extended metaphor of the gauze kerchief, right? Um, the gauze kerchief blowing in the wind. So we have a plane, right? A planar surface, that is a, 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 a handkerchief, um, blowing in the wind. Okay, so we've got a planar surface that undulates and moves and therefore can, like you can crumple up a kerchief, right? That is, you can take one point on a kerchief which is far away from another point, and as it blows in the wind, those two points will sometimes get close to each other, right? Um, this is what I understand of the relevance of that metaphor. Um, he sensed the future as though it twisted across some surface as undulant and impermanent as that of the wind-blown wind kerchief. Um, the future is not rigid, right? He's not seeing across a, a flat plane, a flat and rigid plane, right? Seeing off into the distance, which stretches to infinity. It's not like that. Um, he's seeing the future, but it's twisted and undulant, I love that word, and impermanent. Um, okay. Um, he sees people, people, people. Um, the repetition of that is really interesting, clearly important, right? Notice how fragmentary, you know, we, we were looking before stylistically at how clipped were the sentences, you know, most of the sentences that described Paul's thought earlier on. Now it's openly fragmentary, right? Now we don't just get simple sentences standing as their own paragraphs, we get single words um, and, and clipped off phrases standing as their own paragraphs. People, people, even the guildsmen. Um, notice how the two things are going together. That is, his prescient awareness, which is, again, it's, it's knowledge, it's perception of things. Um, he's sensing the future, he's perceiving the future. The Mentat stuff is what you do with data, right? How you process data. And we saw before about how he's getting all this data. Remember his like awareness of the bug crawling across the tent and everything. Um, how the you know the uh, the 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 accumulation of minutiae, right? Um, that he observed and just concluded, just knew precisely that it was. It's not just that he suspected it was Duncan. It's not just that he get he 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 calculated that there was a one hundred percent chance that that was Duncan Idaho, right? Um, he concluded it as a certainty because of all of the minutiae he was able to observe and accurately draw conclusions from. So we have two factors here with his insight, right? One is the perception of data, right? The accumulation of data through perception. The other is what he's able to do 
with that data, with his computation and his processing of it. We see in his insight into what the Fremen are doing on Arrakis, right, we see the accuracy of his computational faculties here, right? He's able to put this stuff together. And now when his awareness goes up this notch, what happens is his perceptions explode, right? Um, he felt the heat and cold of uncounted probabilities. He sees everything, names and places, emotions without number. Notice emotions, right? Not, not dispassionate. Mentat uh, co computation, or rather that's being combined, that kind of computation is being combined with the experience of all of these emotions, right? The experience of those emotions are being fed into, you know, as data into what he is analyzing. Reviewed data of innumerable unexplored crannies. There was time to probe and taste and test and taste, but no time to shape. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, he sees them in swarms, uh, James and Neil, no, no, sorry, James, I was misreading Neil's. Uh, James is remembering the Baron's bees uh, swarming. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Nancy is wondering if the flesh can't shape the day after all. Um, certainly the relationship between flesh and day seems to be a little bit different here, or at least it's kind of uncertain, right? Is he able to shape the day? Is the day shaping him? Um, the relationship between flesh and time certainly has right away become a very interesting one here, hasn't it? Um, he saw new planets, new cultures. Um, we, he's seeing into the future. He saw his own death in countless ways. He is perceiving all of the different possible ways in which he could die. But again, this is not just Harry Seldon computation, right? This is not just there's this percentage chance that I will be killed in that way if these other things happen, right? But rather, um, a, a sensation, right? Again, not just a computation, not drawing conclusions about his own death. He is seeing his own death in countless ways, and he's seeing people, people, people and all of the complex bundles of data that are these people. Um, and he sees them in such swarms like bees that they couldn't be listed, yet his mind catalogs them. Okay, so his prescient awareness, this expansion of his awareness, is feeding all of this incredible amount of data into his mind, which is chugging away at it, probing and testing, and tasting. But, as Philip Lord says, not to shape. Um, yes, yes. And Kevin points out that it's that he's experiencing everything he sees. He's not only perceiving it. Um, yes, yeah, the, the, it, it is more sort of visceral than that. Um, okay, I have to stop soon, but I'll, I'll keep going. And he thought, the guild. There'd be a way for us, my strangeness accepted as a familiar thing of high value, always with an assured supply of the now necessary spice. Wait, what? What? Notice... Remember before, at the beginning of this scene, 
Paul left Jessica behind, right? And then we get into Jessica's mind, and she's like, I have a kind of a sense that he's leaving me behind here. And we're like, dude, yeah, he's, you, he's way ahead of you now, right? Now he's leaving us behind. Um, the guild, there'd be a way, what, what do you mean? I feel like asking dumb questions like Jessica was, right? Questions that would make Paul say to me, you're so slow. Right? Like, there'd be a way for us. You mean the guild could take you away? Like you could escape the planet because the guild would take you to a different planet? Paul would roll his eyes at me. No, that's not what I mean. You're so slow. Right? Okay, so what, then what? Hang on. His strangeness accepted so as a familiar thing of high value? So this is what the guild do? He's like the guild? He's how? What? Um, always with an assured supply of the now necessary. How would he be assured to have spice? So guildsmen have spice, I guess. Lots of it. Because if you went with a guildsman, you'd have necessary spice. And they're like him. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the end of the book and familiar with the other books, I'm deliberately playing dumb here. Because this we don't know at this point in the book. Right? I mean, at the end of book one, we haven't the faintest idea what Paul is talking about here. Right? He has left us completely behind. Um, uh, and it's hard to understand. But the idea of living out his life in the mind groping ahead through possible futures that guided hurtling spaceships appalled him. Wait, what? The mind groping ahead through possible futures guides hurtling spaceships? This is what the guildsmen do? In some sense, um, undulating kerchiefs, uh, that's what they do. This is how um, space travel happens. Um, okay, okay. Um, we are learning, or we are left to pick up fragments of information that Paul lets drop to us here, right, as we go through. Um, it was a way, though, and in meeting the possible future that contained the guildsman, he recognized his own strangeness. Okay, so he's not going to go and hang out with the guildsman or become a guildsman or do whatever the guildsmen do, which we still don't understand, but it helps him at least to understand what's going on with himself. I have another kind of sight. I see another kind of terrain, the available paths. I see another kind of terrain thinking of the guildsmen, what, they see space and he sees time? Uh, I'm not really sure. I still understand the guildsmen there, but that's okay. Um, he sees another kind of terrain, the available, okay, so he's seeing the available paths. Again, this is, you know, globe paths going out in every direction, but wavier, right? Oh, okay, right? I'm, I'm kind of with you, Paul, still. The awareness conveyed both reassurance and alarm. So many places on that other kind of terrain dipped or turned out of his sight. The awareness conveyed both reassurance and alarm. Isn't it interesting, the phrasing there? Almost as if like he's having a conversation with the awareness, right? Or as if the awareness were other to him. Um, but, well, you know, okay, but even if we don't go as far as that, that, you know, he is being reassured and, uh, and alarmed um, by his awareness. Okay. Um, uh, 
but still, given the way in which we saw this happen at the beginning, the way that this seemed like something that was happening to him and not something that he was doing, it's still, to me, kind of suggestive language there. Um, but okay, so there's reassurance and alarm there. As swiftly as it, had as it had come, the sensation slipped away from him, and he realized the entire experience had taken the space of a heartbeat. Okay, so he just had this sort of out-of-body experience, and um, um, all of this, you know, so this, all of this computation he just did, all of this, like, almost but not quite infinite data that he has just experienced and just processed and cataloged and everything happened instantly outside of time. Okay. One more, and then we'll stop for tonight, um, and we'll finish the rest of it next week. And now he saw that he had a wealth of data few such minds ever before had encompassed. But this made the empty place within him no easier to bear. He felt that something must shatter. It was as though a clockwork control for a bomb had been set to ticking within him. It went on about its business no matter what he wanted. It, re it, re it recorded minuscule shadings of difference around him, a slight change in moisture, a fractional fall in temperature, the progress of an insect across their still-tent roof, the solemn approach of dawn in the star-lighted patch of sky. He could see out the tent's transparent end. The emptiness was unbearable. Knowing how the clockwork had been set in motion made no difference. He could look to his own past and see the start of it, the training, the sharpening of talents, the refined pressures of sophisticated disciplines, even exposure to the O.C. Bible at a critical moment, and, lastly, the heavy intake of spice. And he could look ahead, the most terrifying direction, to see where it all pointed. I'm a monster, he thought. A freak. No, he said. Then, no, no, no! Now it's clear that when Paul says now that he is a mon that he's a freak, he means something quite different than the last time he called himself a freak. Um, Tom Hillman and Philip Lord both at the same moment just typed exactly the same thing. Few such minds? Um, yeah, very few, I guess, few such minds ever before had encompassed. My understanding of that is that it's a reference to Mentats. Again, he's he's computing like a Mentat. Um, no one perhaps has ever had exactly this experience before, uh, not exactly the typical Mentat thing that he's doing, um, but I, I, I think that that's, you know, basically he's sort of talking about how it's going beyond um, Mentat stuff, but again, not just like, I am super Mentat, I am awesome, I am the best Mentat ever, but rather something categorically different from a regular Mentat. Um, uh, an improvement, not to, or a change, not just in sort of in quantity, but in quality. Um, uh, okay. Um, So he has this wealth of data, but this made the empty place within him no easier to bear. What empty place? The empty place where his mourning for his father should be? 
That's what he was focused on before. That's the thing that was hard to bear before, was that emptiness, that lack of humanity within him. Um, he, it was as though a clockwork control for a bomb had been set to ticking within him. Um, not now, right? That is, it's not to say that now is the beginning of the ticking. Now is the explosion, right? The, the ticking started a long time ago, and he makes that pretty clear. Um, uh, he could look, you know, in the next paragraph there, he could look to his own past and see the start of it, the training, the sharpening of talents, the refined... Pre all of these things contribute to it, right? Um, he's been ticking for a long time. This is not the ticking, it's the explosion. He went, it went on about its business no matter what he wanted. That ticking is inexorable. Okay, so maybe the explosion hasn't happened yet, but it's coming, right? It recorded minuscule shadings of difference around him. What? What recorded? It went... Notice all the it's here. He felt that something must shatter. It was as though it went on it recorded. I just sort of pause there for a second. I do a style time pause for a second. Do you see what Herbert just did with the pronoun it in those three sentences? He starts three sentences in a row with the, with the pronoun it. The first time he uses the pronoun it, he uses it in a completely, in a, in a, in a totally vague way, right? It was as though. So that pronoun it doesn't refer to a specific, it doesn't have a specific antecedent, right? It just points to the it, right? It was as though, right? You know, th this is one way that you use the pronoun it, right? That kind of a generic pronoun is often used not to refer to a particular antecedent, but just to function as the subject of the sentence when the subject of the sentence is indefinite, right? Um, and in that phrase, it was as though is exactly the kind of way that that kind of it is often used, right? Um, uh, so anyway, um, it's the, so there's no specific antecedent to it other than like the general, you know, like it's very vague, like the experience, what he was feeling. Um, then in the second sentence, it went on about its business. Still vague, right? What is it? There's still like you still couldn't point to an antecedent to it. Right? There's still no thing there. Um, it's still just kind of vaguely referring to the feeling, but it's doing it much more concretely. Right? It was as though right, the, it is just introducing a simile, um, the simile of the, of, the, of the time bomb. In the second sentence, the it now has an action verb. It went on about its business, right? no matter what he wanted. Third sentence, it recorded minuscule shadings. Um, now the it sounds like a very concrete thing, right? It's it's not just a sort of a vague thing. It's um, um, uh, it's it's uh, it's you know, and uh, you know, both Tom and uh, Nancy are saying, well, the, the it seems to be the clockwork control, right? It can't be in the first sentence, right? The the, the clockwork control for the bomb um, is merely the simile that the it introduces there. Um, you could say it went on about its business. Well, you know, the, 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 the clock, that, that one clearly refers to the clockwork control. Okay, does the third one? It recorded minuscule shadings of difference around him. So the clockwork control for a bomb is, is recording minuscule shadings. Of, it's not, it's not, that's not what 
That's not what clockwork controls for bombs do, right? Um, Nick uh, uh, Morazzo says, uh, Morazzo or Morazzo? Is it just the Z's or is there, is, uh, just, just wondering, Nick, I always like to be able to pronounce people's names correctly, though I often guess wrong. Uh, the TZ, Morazzo, I thought so. Um, okay. Um, Nick says, the it is his awareness. It does sound like that, doesn't it? First, it seems to refer to sort of the general experience, but by that third one, it recorded minuscule shadings. Now, the it does sound like his awareness, right? This thing that happened to him, um, his awareness as separate from himself, that empty place within him is hard for him to bear, right? That empty place where what his mourning should be sounds bigger than that now. Right, his humanity should be, um, himself should be, right? And instead we just have this it, which is doing things and doing things, and he is calling himself a monster and a freak. Um, but there's more. The emptiness is unbearable, we repeat. Um, and knowing how it was set in motion. So he can look back and say, okay, yes, I can see where the time bomb started. Right? I can see what contributed to all of these things. The Bene Gesserit stuff, the sharpening of talents, right, by the Bene Gesserits and by the training he's received uh, from, you know, his father, from, you know, Gurney Halleck and Thufur Hawat and everybody else. The refined pressures of sophisticated disciplines, um, which is a pretty general, you know, his his, his sort of general upbringing there, um, and and especially the Bene Gesserit stuff, even exposure to the OC Bible at a critical moment, and the heavy intake of spice, all of these things put together, and he could look ahead. So this is looking behind. He sees the things. So now, notice his awareness now is focused on himself, not just possibilities of the future and the path they should take. It's about himself and who he is and what he is, right? He looks backward at himself, at his own path, and sees the things that contributed to this, the things that started that time bomb ticking. And then he turns and he looks ahead, that most terrifying direction, to see where it points. And in response to that looking ahead, he says, I'm a monster. A freak. Is this just an assessment of his own very strange awareness and this thing? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, freak. Yeah, I'm. I'm ready to go with freak, right? I mean, that 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 sounds perfectly fair. But I don't think that's it, right? It's what he sees in the future that he's responding to. I'm a monster, right? Um, at least that's how I take that. And then his no, 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 no is, I agree with Neil, um, uh, a future that he needs to avoid, something that he wants to turn away from, um, a choice that he wants to make, clearly. Um, we see him in his shouting of no, making a choice, him asserting his own choice against this thing that's happening to him, this way in which his awareness is opening out. Now notice, nothing that has been described so far has suggested anything about the day shaping the flesh. We saw about the flesh not being able to shape the time, right? Not being able to shape the day. But there's been nothing yet to suggest that the day is shaping him, right? There's been no word about destiny. 
nothing about you know even when there's been this something which has sounded suspiciously like an external thing right still hasn't been um, uh, hasn't been something that's pushing him towards anything all of the images of himself have been simply him being aware him perceiving things and even experiencing things but again passively him at the center with those paths radiating out from him he's not going anywhere yet right at least that's we haven't heard anything about that this moment of no 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 seems to be his first choice the first kind of motion right him resisting against that but I think there's more to that no 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 as well it's not just the no I don't want to go to that future though again I do think it's that but also him looking at himself he's a freak seeing he, he can't bear the emptiness what is the emptiness again the place where his mourning and his humanity um, used to be or should be maybe perhaps in some sense um, well we'll see we still have uh, oh like six more passages that I want to look at in finishing this scene, this scene, so there's a lot more yet to come. But let's pause here now. I kept you long enough tonight. We'll finish this up next time, and then I'll answer any other questions you have. Sarah, if you remind me, I will um, uh, I will talk about Princess Irulan uh, and her quotations and the extensive writings of Princess Irulan um, and, uh, and other questions that you have. Um, Chris Swank was pointing out, was reminding me as we were going through, uh, many of the ideas that you guys have and the things you would like to talk about, like, for instance, discussions of uh, views of the future in Dune and Foundation, for instance, would make fantastic papers, which you could write and present at MythMoot this coming year, um, which reminds me to remind you that the end of August is actually our deadline for submission of abstracts for papers. Um, if you want to come to our conference, Baltimore, in the second weekend of January, you will have an opportunity uh, to, um, uh, to, uh, to present uh, papers. Uh, so, um, so uh, you know, hey, if you want to do this, do it, man. I encourage you. Um, go to uh, uh, go to our our website, MythGuard.org. Look at the MythMoot page. Um, send your abstract to events at MythGuard.org, and uh, yeah, we would be really interested to hear your Dune ideas uh, for the conference. So, anyway. Just so I just thought, thought I'd mention that it's sort of an obvious outlet uh, for more of this discussion. And come join us at MythMoot. We can carry on some of these conversations. Um, but anyway, for now, uh, I will look forward to next week's conversation when we uh, finish looking at what is happening with Paul and uh, then go on and discuss uh, uh, whatever questions you guys have and topics you guys want to discuss. So thanks very much, everybody. Good night. <laughs>